Thank you, David. Thank you, worship team. If you did not receive a fill-in-the-blank handout, when you came in, they are fresh off the press. And so if you did not receive one, do we have any left? Is there a pile of them sitting somewhere? Did everyone get one that wanted one? Does anybody need one? We have some in the middle. Are there any left? We must be out. I'm sorry. Well, we got some right there. Hold your hand up. Here they come. Very good. We began last Sunday night a study of the kingdom of God, and I did not announce how many studies there would be or how long it would take, and so I'm excited because each week we're going to take a different aspect of the kingdom of God and talk about it. And as I mentioned last week, I believe it's one of the most important. In fact, I believe it's the organizing concept for the Scripture. If you want to truly understand the Word of God, I believe you must understand what the kingdom of God is. We saw last week that it was the central message that Jesus preached. And so that alone begs us further study. We need to know what the kingdom of God is. And so tonight our question is, what is the kingdom of God? We're just going to define it. And then in future weeks, we're going to take it further in terms of what it is and how it makes a difference in our life. Some years ago, well, like most of you, I came to know Christ hearing the gospel, the good news that my sins were forgiven when Jesus died for me on the cross. And I, I put my trust in him. I was raised in another religious tradition where I've been taught that I had to essentially earn my way to God. I had to do certain things in order to please him and be satisfactory to him. And when I heard the gospel of grace, I discovered that without condition, God loved me, that without condition, he offers salvation to me if I will simply put my trust in Jesus and what he did for me. Now, that is good news. That is not all the good news. As Jesus came preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, he was telling us also something else very profound that takes that basic understanding of the gospel and enlarges it way beyond what anything we ever dreamed or could have imagined. When I turned 40, uh, which was some time ago now, but when I first turned 40, two weeks after my birthday, I became very ill and we thought I was, I was a goner. I thought I was a goner. And, um, and it was an intensely uh, significant turning point in my life, as those times tend to be. And I don't want to tell the whole story, but what I want to tell you that came out of that story is a couple of things. I began a study of the concept of weakness in the Scripture and how God works through our weaknesses, not our strengths, but through our weaknesses, to show himself and to manifest himself to the world as well as to our own hearts. And so, in the course of that study, I, I basically stumbled on this whole question of the kingdom of God and just found a wealth of insight and a wealth of understanding that I desperately needed at that time in my life. And as the years have passed, I've become more convinced than ever that it is the way of understanding who he is. It is the single most important attribute of character of God that you and I need to most understand. Now, when we think about definitions of the kingdom of God, there are different things that people have said, scholars and theologians have said. And let me just list these briefly. 
some people have described the kingdom simply as something subjective that happens on the inside. Uh, the salvation within the human soul and the kingdom is a way of understanding that salvation. Others have said that the kingdom is simply a new heaven and a new earth in the future. It's something that's not here yet, but it's something that's coming. Others have said that the kingdom, in fact, is the church. That the church and its mission to transform individuals and all human societies is a description of the kingdom of God as it advances and moves forward. The church is that kingdom that is being enlarged and uh, that is changing the world. And then others have taken the concept of the kingdom of God and used it to describe all social activity and efforts towards social justice to construct an ideal society free from human suffering and inequality. And they will call that the kingdom. And in casual language, sometimes you and I describe any effort where churches do th something together as kingdom activity. That it's going beyond our walls and anything we do beyond our walls is an activity of the kingdom. And I hate to tell you, but, but there are seeds of truth in some of that, but that is not what the kingdom of God is. Not, not one of those by themselves represent the kingdom of God. So how is the word kingdom used in the New Testament? Well, it gets a little confusing when you start digging into the text because there are different ways in which it is described. How kingdom is used in the New Testament. First, it is a present spiritual reality. It's something that is right now. For example, in Romans 14, 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not something happening later, but something that's happening right now. But elsewhere, you'll read that the kingdom of God, it is at work in the world now. Not just a spiritual reality, something that's internal, but it's also something that's external in the world right now. For example, example a very important verse we're going to come back to later, in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, when accused of casting out demons using the power of demons, he said that was silly, that's my translation, because the kingdom divided itself against itself, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But he said this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the kingdom of God was not only being preached, Jesus was demonstrating the kingdom of God by the miracles and the exorcisms that he performed. But thirdly, the kingdom is also a future inheritance of the people of God. It's not just present internally and externally, but it's also something that happens in the future that we're going to receive. In Matthew 25, 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so that's something we don't have yet. It's something that's still coming. Something that you and I are going to receive at some point in the future, those of us that know Christ as our Lord. The kingdom, number four, is also a present spiritual realm that believers enter into at salvation. Now that's a little bit different nuance than what we've seen. It's not something internal right now. It's not something just external where God is at work in the world. It's not something in the future that I receive, but, but it's something I actually enter into. It's a realm. It's like a place a sphere, a place of existence that I enter into at salvation. Verse we're familiar with from our study of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the power 
or the domain or the kingdom of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so, without changing physical addresses on earth, we have been moved from one kingdom to another. And we have to enter into the kingdom of God if we ever have any hope of salvation. But finally, the Bible speaks of the kingdom as a future realm believers enter at Christ's return. You see, we've entered it now, but there's another sense of the kingdom of God that we enter at the second coming. 2 Peter 1.11, he says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he's talking about Christ's final return. So does that clear it up for you? You got a clear picture now of what the kingdom is? It's now, it's not yet, it's present, but it's also in the future. It's something you enter into now and it's something you enter into later. That's just crystal clear, right? If it's not, it's okay. We're not done yet. So what is the meaning of the kingdom? If you go to a standard dictionary, an English dictionary, and the way that you and I tend to use the word kingdom, we tend to think of a couple of things first. And these are not alien to the scripture, but they are derived from the primary meaning of the word kingdom. And, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But, but typically, we think of a couple of things. We think of the word kingdom as the place over which a king exercises authority. A place. This is the kingdom of Disney. Okay, and that's where Disney exercises his kingdom stuff, all right, a place. Or we think of the people, the people who live in the realm of king's rule. And so the subjects of Queen Elizabeth are part of her kingdom. And so in common thought, you and I think of kingdom that way, as a place or as people. But now what I'm going to give you right now is very, very important. It'll shape the rest of the evening. And it may change your thinking about a lot of things. It'll be, it'll be the way of understanding the kingdom that I believe will unlock the entire New Testament to you when you read it from now on. Okay? Here it is. In the Bible, kingdom refers to the ruling power of a king. Not the people, not the place, but his power. In Hebrew, the word kingdom is the Hebrew word malkuth. And it did not refer to people or place. It referred to an attribute that a king possessed in his person. And the Greek word for it is basileia, which refers to the word kingdom. Again, it's describing an attribute of the king. It is his rule. It is his power to rule. It is not the realm that he rules over. Now, the people that he rules over is derived from that concept. The place he rules over as a kingdom is derived from that idea. But the essential concept of kingdom in the Bible is not the people or the place, but it's the power or the authority that he alone possesses. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, defined kingdom this way, and I believe it comes very close to what we're trying to describe, as, quote, the range of one's effective will. The range of one's effective will. That's, that's your kingdom. How far does your kingdom go? <laughs> the range of your effect. I wish for a lot of things, but I can't make a whole lot happen. And the extent to which things are done the way I want them done, that's the extent of my power or my, or my rule. A child is a child you grow up, 
and you define yourself. You, you're, you're trying to figure out your kingdom when you're little. You say, kids are, trying, are worried about their kingdom? You bet they are. How much power do I have? <laughs> and they're trying to figure it out. Who's in charge here? And they test the limits, the range of their effective will all the time. And if you don't know that, just babysit a two-year-old for an afternoon. So the range of one's effective will or the actual ruling power that a king possesses is what is meant by the word kingdom in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me give you some Old Testament examples. When Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, listen to what he says. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom power, strength, and glory. And in the text, those are synonyms. So look at the synonyms for the word kingdom in Daniel 2.37. Kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Not a place, not people, but an attribute that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, the right or the power to rule. Later on in Daniel, he interprets the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar. That's where we get the expression. Well, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Well, so did Belshazzar. <laughs> that's, where it, that's where it all began. And when Daniel interpreted the handwriting on the wall in Daniel 5, verse 26, here's what it says. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. In other words, the days are numbered for your kingdom. It's over. Your kingdom is over. Now, does that mean that the people were destroyed? Or that the geographical area that he ruled over was destroyed? No, not at all. It means that the right to rule, his ruling power, was being taken away from him. It was stopping. In fact, when you read just a few verses later, in verse 30 of Daniel 5, it says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. His kingdom's over. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So what was given to Darius? The people and the place came with the right to rule. And so that's what was transferred between the two men, was the, the power or the kingly uh, power and authority was transferred from one king to another. Let me show you this in the New Testament. In the Gospels, probably the best place you can see this is in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And I love this chapter. This is right after the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the wee little man, you know that story, that song. I'm not going to sing it. And Jesus witnesses to him in a miraculous way. He comes under that tree, he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. He never met Zacchaeus before. They knew his name. And they go to his house, and Zacchaeus is so pumped, he's so excited, he says, I'm, I'm going to fix everything. Everything I've ever done wrong, I'm going to make right. I'm going to give to the people that I stole from and that I hurt. And Jesus talked about salvation coming to that house. And then he said, this is the reason that the Son of Man has come. It's for this reason that he might seek and save that which was lost. Now, right after that is when this story is told. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 19, verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, they're in Zacchaeus' house. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought 
the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And again, this is one of these passages we'll come back to later in our study of the kingdom of God. They expected something else. But what was about to happen? You know the story. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven. The kingdom, as they expected it to come, didn't come the way they expected. God didn't come in in his final expression of his rule. People are still rebellious. Sin still abounds. And it is the mercy and grace of God that he has delayed his coming in power so that people have time to repent. So, but Jesus is trying to help them understand. And so he tells this story. Listen. Because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Verse 12. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, you see what's happening in the text. He's a nobleman. As we see, if you read the rest of the parable, he's got stuff. He's got people under his authority. He's got people. He tells them what to do, and they do it. He has a geographical area. He has land. He has all kinds of stuff, but he doesn't have a kingdom. You see the difference? He goes to receive himself a kingdom. He already had the territory. The problem is that he was not a king. He needed authority to rule or the right to rule. And so in that sense, Jesus has left, and he's trying to show them that when he returns, he's coming back, how? (laughs) As a king, with the full right to rule. He didn't come the first time that way. Hear me carefully. He's the Lord of lords, King of kings, his Son of God. But he didn't express the full rule and reign of God when he came the first time. But when he comes the second time, he will. He will. And um, the one who was a lamb will come back as a lion. And, and that's what he's explaining to those disciples who are going to be so bewildered in just a few days with his death. So listen to how the New Revised Standard Version puts it. I'm not recommending that version, but the NRSV captures perfectly what kingdom is at this, moment, at this point. Verse 12, so he said a nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. You see it? Not a people, not a place. He already had those things. But now he's, he's going to possess the right to rule, to be a king. Now, Jesus may have been drawing on history at this point. In 40 B.C., before Christ, in, 40, in, that, in, that, in that year, 40 B.C., Herod the Great, seeing the total chaos and lack of stability in Palestine, traveled to Rome to become a king. Now, the Romans had conquered Palestine about 20 years earlier, but things were still chaotic. And so he goes to the Roman Senate, and he asked to be made king of Palestine. Now, he was powerful. He had all kinds of people who did what he said, but he didn't have the right to rule. He goes to the Senate. They grant that to him, and he returns literally as a king. He went to a far country to receive a kingship or the authority to be king in Judea, over the Jews. Jesus may have had that in mind. I don't know. But it's an illustration of the difference between kingdom as place and people and kingdom as power or the right to rule. Now, with that kind of background, I want you to see a couple things. First, I want you to see that our God is the king. Our God is the king. He, he's never taken a holiday. 
He's never taken a break. And you say, there's so much chaos and horrible things in the world. That's right. But our God is the king. What is the range of God's effective will? In other words, how much can he expect to be done that will be done? In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. All. His power, his authority extends over everyone and everything. There is no place in this universe where God is not king and where he's not in full possession of his rights as a king. I want you to see this in Psalm 145, verse 11. In Hebrew poetry, it's common to use parallelism, to say one thing and then to say it again the same, a different way, but to make the same point. You say the phrase one way, and then you say it another way. And in Psalm 145, verse 11, we have an example of that. They shall speak, speak of the glory of your kingdom. Now, here's the parallel statement. And talk of your power. You see what the two things are? Kingdom and power. Now, what is the range of his rule? How long will it last? Well, it lasts through eternity. A couple verses later in Psalm 145, he writes, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His rule and right to rule never ends. No beginning and no end. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. That's our God. That's who we serve. That's our king. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, if we understand that the kingdom of God is the rule or the authority of God, without regard for a particular place or people, once you know this, I believe you can read the New Testament in a new way, and it begins to make sense, perhaps, as never before. Let me give you three examples as we close. First of all, the kingdom is to be the daily focus of my life. I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. In Matthew 6, verse 33, he said, But seek, the first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You and I must seek the kingdom of God every day. What are we seeking? The church? No. Are we seeking a particular place? No, if I know Jesus, I'm already in the kingdom, in, an, in the sense of place. What am I seeking every day? I'm seeking the heart and the will of God, his righteousness, his rule, and his reign in my life. Every day. And you and I can never take a break from that truth. We cannot take vacations from the will of God. Each day, he says, with all your heart, earnestly, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about your career. Don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from. I want you to first be concerned about what is the will of God today. What is your will for me, Lord, in this day? Another example. The goal of my prayer life is to ask for the rule of God in my circumstances. You know the Lord's Prayer. You have recited it perhaps hundreds of times in your life. But listen to what he says in the very middle of the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus 
teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And notice right away the connection between will and the kingdom coming. Your kingdom come, bring it, Lord. And may your will be done on earth where I can see and where I live and where I breathe and where I'm sitting this very moment. May your will be done on earth as it is right now in heaven in the realm I cannot see where you rule perfectly and everything you want done is done. Almighty God, would you enter into my circumstances, my life, my situation, or the circumstances of the life of my friend. And that's the nature of prayer. What are you asking God to do? God, would you come into my circumstances? And would you, would you rule? And you know what he does? Sometimes we see the very perfect heart of God expressed in answers to prayer. Now, I'm not going to promise you, I can't tell you that, and you know better than this that the will of God is expressed perfectly in everything that happens in this world, you know that's not true. We saw in last Sunday morning's sermon that God has this amazing way of using everything, good and bad, ultimately to accomplish his purpose. We know that. But there are times when I pray for someone who's sick and they get sicker. Has that ever happened to you? And I can't explain that to you. We're going to explore that later in this series and talk about the mystery associated with the kingdom of God. I believe that the parables in Matthew 13 are all about Jesus trying to help his disciples understand if God's kingdom is here now, why do we not see it perfectly expressed? But there are other times. (laughs) There are other times where you and I pray for somebody to get better. And they get better. They're healed. Their provision of what they need is given. The doors they need to open, open. And what is happening in those moments? It is the awesome king coming into our circumstances and showing us his rule and his right to rule, his authority and his power. And so the very heartbeat of prayer is, oh God, would you come as king into my prayer need, into my circumstance, or into the need and circumstance of my friend that I'm interceding for. And we're taught to pray that way. Finally, real life, real life begins by yielding everything to the rule of God. That's where real life begins. Eternal life begins right there. You and I were made for him. You and I were never made to do life apart from the kingdom of God. And I don't know where we'll go in our our study. I would love to take us to Genesis and explore how the kingdom of God is expressed in creation. When God just speaks and stuff happens. And this God who speaks and nothing obeys him and becomes something is disobeyed by a human being. 
What is the significance of that? And how does that happen? And how does that help us understand the world I'm living in right now? I'd love for us to look at that. But tonight, I just want you to see this truth. In Mark 10, 15, if you don't know Christ, listen to this final verse very carefully. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, it's not the church, it's not a place or a people, it's not even heaven at this point. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. What's received? The church? Heaven? No. What is received is God's rule. And when a person is saved, what you're doing is allowing the king of kings to come in and have directional control and rule of your life. And just like a trusting child, you say, Lord, I'm going to let you rule over me. I'm going to let you call the shots. I'm going to let you make the decisions. We have for years had this argument, even in Baptist life, over a two-stage concept of salvation that says something like this. A person believes in Jesus Christ and they receive him as Savior. But then in the process of being a disciple and in growing and maturity, they come to a later stage or a later decision where they receive Christ as Lord. And they make Jesus Lord of their life. Can I just tell you something? If you ever encounter Jesus Christ, he is always Lord. He's always Lord. And the process of being made more and more his, the process we call sanctification, is a process increasingly of you and I taking our will and our heart and yielding it to the lordship of God. That starts from the very beginning. Please understand me. It starts from day one. And like a little child who says, Daddy, catch me, (laughs) and jumps, God is calling you and me to trust him like that. Will you trust him as your Lord? Will you trust him to take care of you? Will you trust him to truly forgive you for all your sin because he sent Jesus to die for your sin? Will you trust him that he knows best? Will you trust him that he truly possesses all power and authority in the universe, although your circumstances may not make that clear to you? Will you trust him no matter what? Tonight, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And a prayer for salvation, and you just keep looking at me, I just want you to hear the words. A prayer for salvation may sound something like this when it's prayed from the heart. Oh God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, forgive me for trying to do my life without you. And Lord, right now, as best I understand it, I'm turning from a life without you, and I'm turning to a life with you. And I'm asking you, Lord, through Jesus Christ to forgive me for all my sin. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to die for me. And as best I understand it, Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm surrendering my entire life to you. I'm entrusting you with all that I am and all that I have. And I'm asking you, Almighty God, to take my life and change me and to grow me and to bring me into your kingdom. Now, when a person prays like that, or something very similar to that, 
and it's from the heart. The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not about the perfection of your prayer. It's about the power of the king to take a broken human heart and make it whole and change it into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Christ tonight, when we stand and sing, I'm going to ask you to slip out of the pew, to come forward publicly and without shame, Speak to one of these pastors or myself. We'll be standing down here at the front. If you have questions, we'll answer your questions with God's word. You can read it for yourself. But there's no sense and there's no need for you to go one more night, one more day, without putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then, brothers and sisters, let's explore, digest, embrace every shred of of truth that we can associate with the kingdom of God. You and I are part of the kingdom of God, and we know that is good news. And as we continue this study on Sunday nights, we're going to see increasingly, I pray every Sunday night, why it is the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, for teaching us, for showing us something of the good news of the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord that you reign in the heavens, and that you do whatever pleases you. And we ask you, Lord, through your Holy Spirit right now to speak to our hearts, to speak to individual hearts, especially those that are wrestling with full surrender. That person who is wrestling with giving you full control of the direction of their life. Father, would you enable them tonight, fill them with faith, fill them with the capacity to trust you, And may that moment that they do be the turning point of their life. Father, as we worship you now, as we respond to you and what you have said, would you take control of this service? And would you guide us in our response to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.